maybe 20 feet up. Oh, man, what a bit. That just broke him up every night. But not like Dubuque. And all those colors, all those yellows, all those reds, all those oranges, a lot of gray in there now, a lot of blue. And all he wanted to do was to make this crowd laugh. That's all he wanted out of this world. They were laughing all right. Not like Dubuque, but they were laughing. And the dough started to come in. He was playing the big towns, Chicago, Detroit. And then it was Pittsburgh one night. Real fine town, Pittsburgh, you know. About three quarters way through his act, a rope broke. Down came the backdrop, right on the back of the neck. And he went flat. And something broke. This was it. It hurt way down deep inside. He tried to get up. He looked out at the audience. And you, man, you should have, you should have seen that crowd. It was rolling in the aisle. This was bigger than Dubuque. This was bigger than Dubuque. He really had him going. Well, this was it. This was the last one. This was the last one. This was the last one. He knew now. Man, he really knew now. But it was too late. And all he wanted was to make this crowd laugh. Well, they were laughing. But now he knew. end of the clown. And you should have seen the bookings coming. Man, his agent was on the phone for 24 hours. The Palladium. MCA. William Morris. I was telling He really knew now. He really knew. William Morris sends regrets.
Good afternoon. This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. You're listening to the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Roy Jacobstein, poet, public health physician, and uh, we'll be talking about his book of poems, Ripe, which was a finalist for the American Academy of Poets Walt Whitman Award, and the Edda Hirsch pick for the 2002 Felix Pollock Prize, as well as a whole host of other things. Welcome. Thank you. It's really great to have you here. Um, this broadcast, this um, show has been pre-recorded for broadcast today, by the by. Well, let's begin with Manifest Destiny. You told me in an earlier conversation that you fulfilled your Manifest Destiny as the firstborn Jewish son, but this was not as a poet. Uh, no, you know, uh, I found through life that uh, many stereotypes and jokes have a certain um, uh, aspect of truth in them. So when I tell people the joke that my parents sent out the birth of the announcement of their son, Dr. Roy Jacobstein, they uh, were only partially kidding. So it was a sort of manifest destiny. Great. Uh, so, but you became a physician and um, you have been, well, let's see, we'll, we'll sort of circle back in there, but you um, you became a physician and a public health, you have a master's in public health as well and have, and have worked in international development, but in that same conversation you told me about um, always being a writer, even though this is not sort of your first profession. Um, well, actually, I, I, a subsequent teacher of mine, when I lamented the fact that I had not actually been writing for a number of years before I did what I think of as breaking through to writing, told me I always was writing. I actually wasn't always writing, but I did always want to write. It, I thought it was a very high calling, uh, on a par certainly with medicine even even then, but I had what I thought of as primary terminal writer's block. I didn't think I would ever be able to write. Well, let's, you, you've clearly done it. Let's take a look at some of your poems. Let's start with um, the, first book from, the first poem from the book, Ripe. Would you read Chartreuse for us? Sure. I should mention, if I may, my mother was a French teacher, and uh, um, that will emerge in the poem, but it's also uh, uh, there in the title, Chartreuse. The finches must be migrating north again. There, someone points, and at last I see it in the quivering backdrop of backlit leaves, and immediately I think of my mother, because it's the color she called chartreuse, looking up at me from her magnifying glass and sheaf of French exams to affix that word to the 58 Chevy my father brought home. Everything was a forest then, impenetrable as the upper Amazon, our modern parents raising us beneath the icy aegis of science. It wasn't pee-pee and poop, it was urinate and defecate, penis and vagina, yet never a hint of the mechanics or mess of sex. So what else could I do but attend med school to learn left supraclavicular notch was the name for that soft indentation above the collarbone whence I'd thought for years babies must come, knowing even then they must come from somewhere deep within the woman's body. Yes, it was all so abstruse, but now my dictionary yields memory's precise hue. It's a clear light green with a yellowish tinge, color of the aromatic liqueur made by the Carthusian monks at Grenoble, France. And you ease its top shoulder down and bottom shoulder up to guide it safely from the birth canal out into this numinous world of sun and finch 
Amazon and oak, of stillness and motion, nest and migration, of source and shadow, instrument and accident, of holding on and letting go. Beautiful. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about the ways in which you come to your writing. Um, There are very different sorts of ways in which one comes to medicine. Everyone I know who's been through med school is memorizing, 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 and, and there's a certain thing you are supposed to learn, whereas poetry is this broader sort of thing you are supposed to bring forth. Um, and there are things to learn, but there's there's also um, an opening up that's involved that is a very different, I imagine, um, process than what happens in medicine. Will you tell us a little bit about that process for you? Well, that that's true, and, and that's a very interesting question, and I actually haven't thought about that. Uh, I'm, in a funny way, I'm co- almost the opposite point. I'm I'm giving several presentations on the complementarities and interpenetration of poetry and medicine, and what they have in common—a kind of way of seeing and a way of being in the world. So I hadn't thought about it the way you put it, but it's actually very interesting. Um, in medicine, of course, one has to assimilate a, a, a huge. Uh, uh, amount of of new facts, new materials, new ways of of behaving and and uh and you're assuming a profession and uh and in poetry you're facing the empty page uh we may get into this later but it, that empty page had a certain paralyzing aspect uh, early on and it and it still does I suspect for many uh writers out there who may be listening to this um but uh, but it may be because of those differences that there are so many historically in in our time, so many uh, people in the health professions who also um, um, seek some creative outlet and are are known for that, whether it's writing or or, uh, another art form. Great. So when you are writing, do you have to sort of carve out a space that's very different from the space that you have in your other when you're wearing your other hats, um, and how do you go about it? Well, um, I definitely have to carve out space. I, I, I have to have uh, kind of a sense of of, um, of time and, and space and not being... Uh, I, I have what a patient of mine once called a short attention plan. So I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I'm easily distractible, and it's helpful to be in one's own space. Um, on the other hand, just walking over here for the interview, I saw some things that triggered thoughts, and I uh, took notes, and I suspect all writers have their, their pad, uh, figuratively or not, uh, uh, where they jot little notes. And so I have a, much like some people keep their taxes in a, in a folder and go to it once a year, I have a folder of little jottings, and I'll go to them. And so often when I go to write in the morning, I don't even know what I'm going to be writing about. Is morning the time that you sort of carve out as the sacred time for writing, or do you um, plug in here and there throughout the day? When I had a lot more time available, morning was the time, and I, it's still the preferable time because it's closest to dreams, so you're, there's that duality of worlds that you can hopefully tap into. Yeah. Well, you're... Um, you went to school after you've gotten your your MD and your MPH, your Master's in Public Health. Um, 
after establishing his career as, a, as a, an international development um, person and a physician, you went back to school again to get your Master's of Fine Arts and went to the Warren Wilson School, which is a low-residency MFA program. Um, can you tell me about the decision to do that and how you went from jottings and writing um, sort of on your own to deciding to formalize this as part of um, the what you are? Sure. Um when I finally broke through to writing, because uh, I suspect of my medical training and medical background, I had very much an apprentice uh, concept of learning. And uh, in fact, in medical school, the first day, I remember they tell you that the doctor's a perpetual student, and I have certainly proven that because I actually came back to Ann Arbor after graduating medical school about 10 years after that to get my MPH, and then I got my master's in fine arts about 10 years after that. so, um, And the Warren Wilson program is designed for people that, that have already uh, families and lives and careers. And uh, it's a very interesting pedagogical approach where for two, it has no permanent faculty. Um, I was fortunate enough to study with wonderful teachers, including my last teacher, um, who is a professor here in Ann Arbor, Linda Gregerson. And... Um, the the pedagogical approach is you descend on the campus for two weeks every six months when there are no other students there. So the teachers and the students come from all over the country. Um, you engage in, in uh, uh, lectures, workshops, classes, readings, and uh, it's incredibly intense. Medical school was good preparation for that because at the end of the two weeks, most people staggered out of there, and I was ready for another semester. <laughs> and indeed, bring I it on. Uh, yeah, indeed, I petitioned to stay on an extra year. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it must have been. You you mentioned to me. I believe that this was one of the most ex um, extraordinary experiences of your life. Um, if you wanted to hang on for an extra year, that must have been true. What was it? What was the sort of kernel of extraordinary? Well, um, I understand Ann Carson's on the faculty now at Michigan. She was there once semester when I was there in the audience um, for any class would be the other teachers, which immediately meant that for a teacher, they didn't just pull a lecture off the shelf. They knew they were doing this to their peers. So the level of, of uh, dialogue and discourse was very, very high. Um, there would be times there would be three or four MacArthur Award winners in the audience. Um, um, the students were were very diverse. Um, um, and and very impressive. And I, the founder of the program, Ellen Bryant Voigt, um, I remember telling her that this program would make an incredible uh, New Yorker profile. And she, as was her want, she said, that's a great idea. Why don't you write it? <laughs> Which immediately stopped me in my tracks. But it it it, uh, it had uh, it it. Um, well, to give one example, when I was practicing medicine, I was an inner-city pediatrician, and I had a lot of uh, um, African-American patients, a lot of teenage mothers, and there was one woman in the class who had the, uh, I don't think she'd mind me mentioning her on the air, a superb poet whose name uh, karmically was Constance Merritt. She subsequently had her won some book awards. She's had her poetry in The New Yorker and in The Atlantic and places like that, and um she she had a medical condition, various medical conditions. So she was essentially blind. She could only read by holding the either by reading with Braille or holding it right up against her eyes. 
and yet she was getting a Ph.D. in English literature simultaneously with getting the MFA. Um, she was a wonderful poet. Uh, you know, we had people there from Hollywood. We had, uh, uh, you know, Vietnam veterans. Uh, um, they always liked to have a doctor or two around. I, I suspect that was... They thought it was some kind of security. The doctor <laughs> in the right. house. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I, to give you another example, a fiction writer came who was, um, uh, she was from Malaysia. She was fluent in Portuguese, Malay, Mandarin, Chinese, and English. She was an emergency room physician. She taught modern dance. And at the time, she was an illegal alien also. Heavens <laughs> to Betsy. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of uh, hats and, and issues and stuff. Um, well, it sounds like an amazingly diverse program. And I imagine that some of those teachers um, have been big influences. Um, who have been the big – I mean, if you had to sort of pick a handful of three to five, who would you say – and they don't all have to be poets. But sure. who are your where, – what's, where you, what's your lineage? Um, that's a – Another always good for a writer to think about in terms of the immediate lineage, and that was such a seminal event in my life. Um, my first teacher, uh, who I may talk about a little later, Aga Shahid Ali, um, just to show you how the program works, we started, we sat down, and he said, you know, the beginning of your poems are really weak. And I said, okay, let's work on the beginning of my poems. And we did. And... Um, I worked. I had the good fortune to work with Dean Young, who, who many uh, writers out there and poets out there would know is, is a fine poet and, and considered a surrealist and maybe America's finest. And when I uh, told him I wanted to work with him, he said, uh, why? And I said, well, you know, I have a scientific background, and for me, one and one always equals two, and I want it to equal three. And he said, or Q. <laughs> and, and indeed, I worked with him and had a very productive uh, semester. What I was interested in is how in, in highly associative poems, but also in what held them together. So I ended up looking at uh, the various factors within poems that, that endow it with energy, allow it to widely range, and yet still give a kind of a sense of unity or, or completion. And that shows up a lot in this book. There are, there, there are some just amazing leaps that happen and then spiral back around in um, to sort of where you started, but not. <laughs> so um, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is poet Roy Jacobstein. <laughs>
afternoon. Thanks for coming back. Or we're back. Um, thanks for being here. You're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCVN. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is poet Roy Jacobstein, and we're talking about his work and his influences, and more broadly about his life and how that plays into his poetry. You have worked in international development. In fact, in the first conversation we had, we discovered we have a colleague in common in Jakarta, which is a very small world sort of story. Um, so you've worked in inter- you started out as a as an inner city pediatrician, and then became a public health um, worker overseas. And are you still working in public health then, in addition to your poetry? Yes, I. Um uh, I guess to continue to wear the multiple hats and see how far a human can um, extend their body. I live in Chapel Hill, and I am the medical director of a of a international non governmental organization that works on women's reproductive health overseas, and that's based in New York City. So I commute from Chapel Hill to New York, and I also work overseas um, periodically in Africa or Asia, working on. Uh, not clinical medicine, but uh, health programs, helping our counterpart uh, programs uh, with the latest knowledge and skills about reproductive health. And being overseas, uh, that brings up um, all kinds of issues of politics and another little musical break. (laughs) The 21st century intrudes. It does. Well, it's good to know we're here. (laughs) We won't lose where we are. Um, This is indeed located in this epoch. Um, So let's, let's, Think about politics. We're be- we'll move off of technology and back to politics, although they're interrelated, particularly in international family planning circles. Um, but a lot of your poems are infused with political threads, and um, you're writing um, what you've to- called to me, what you've termed to me, some political poetry. Um, and I wonder if you'll talk a little bit about what political poetry means to you, what that term means, and, and what that does, and then we'll read one of your poems. Well, you'll read one of your poems, and, sure. and we'll talk some more. Um I suppose in a sense um, one could make the case I've seen it said and there's a certain truth to it that uh, all poetry at a certain level is political if if political is taken to mean the choices you you make in your life and the implications they have for the world around you. Um, I I sense when I think about it there's a continuity um, in the kind of development work I do and in the writing in that they are both – animated at least in part by a sense of injustice that I guess I got kind of early on and I suppose it relates to my um, ethnic uh, heritage and um, there are still a lot of pretty terrible things going on as we all know. Um, ironically, when I graduated Warren Wilson, it was June in June of 2001 and to graduate you have to give a course and I gave a course on political poetry and I was going to uh, initially make the case that because there are so many received truths in political poetry that it's easy to write bad political poetry like slavery was bad, what we did to the Indians was bad, the Holocaust was bad. And um, to transcend that and turn it into art is, is al- it's always difficult to do in any circumstance, but in some ways it's harder to do with political poetry, and I was going to make the case that it had to be held to a higher standard, and then I realized that that was privileging it in the other direction, That, but it simply has to be 
excellent. But what what I did was uh, one of the techniques I did was to to uh, festoon the wall with quotes from well-known poets. So on the one hand, I recall having Yeats, who said, "I detest the poetry of the point of view," even though you could argue that he he wrote some poems like that. And on the other hand, Neruda, who perhaps is the greatest love poet or one of them, mm-hmm. saying that he thought political poetry was more profound than love poetry, and yet some of his political poetry is not all that good. And um, uh, so, but but pol- I guess poets write in a certain way to say I was here to say this is what's important, this is what's important to me, and the political realm as we see. Today, if I if I if I can make a, a plug, uh, just by chance, the um, and you don't know this yet, Ashley, I don't think, but just yesterday, the uh, poetry uh, uh, website Poetry Daily, which is www.poems.com, uh, featured one of my poems that is now in the Three Penny Review uh, called Ardor, and on the surface, that poem is about Theodore Roosevelt and how he managed to eliminate the British spelling from the English we use, but it's really a poem about Iraq. So uh, that's an example of how to uh, transmute something and to give it layers of meaning the way poetry does. Well, and let's look at an example that we have with us today um, in which you do that, and then we'll talk about some more about some of the ways in which you do. Will you read Stolat for us? Sure. I have to say, uh, I preface this, this is a long poem I wrote when at the time I was and have continued to be um, interested in, in the world and world events and uh, and trying um, uh, the, the whole area called uh, Poetry of Witness. Uh, and um, this was when I was trying to get every atrocity and terrible thing into a poem before that teacher I mentioned, uh, Aga Shahid Ali, taught me the very useful uh, uh, notion that if you're writing about a big su- subject, you should write small, and if you're writing a small s- about a small subject, you should write big. So this one, um, I didn't follow that, but it, it's called Stolat, which in Polish means long life and is the toast to good health, uh, or literally 100 years. And it's written to the memory of, of Robert Desnos, the French, uh, French poet. Your voice comes late, Robert, here in a converted barn at a writer's conference, amid the litany of concentration camps rattling the loose windows, the names of many unknown to me, a child of the mild and mundane Midwest, born after the ovens had cooled, their vapors curling no longer out of Europe's voiceless mouth over the black Madonna's saltless tears. There were blue numbers on the ventral surface of her right arm, my mother-in-law-to-be, that spring day in 1970. Her daughter Shoshana, the one the few survivors from Rodham said was Manya's exact double, stood beneath the canopy, Detroit Sherid Sedek, and heard the rabbi say, repeat after me, in Hebrew and then English, Ani Ladodi Vadodi Li, I am my beloved's, as my beloved is mine. I too was learning new words, lesion, necrosis, dysmorphic, ventral. I pay tribute to you, Manya, Manushka, Maria, 
grandmother of my son. I thank God you spoke flawlessly that guttural tongue I can never hear without hearing round them up. Spoke so fluently you and your blue eyes passed, and even when they could pass no longer, still at Auschwitz they were passport to the office job, the occasional German kindness of warm roll, a hard-boiled egg, just as there must have been at Auschwitz a sunny day, sunny days, the kind of day where anywhere on earth long life seems possible. I pay tribute to you, Robert, reading the fortunes of your fellow travelers, headed where? Birkenau, Belzen, Treblinka, Terezin. Even in the boxcars you trailed your index finger along the smooth palms of the young, the creases and fissures of the old, predicting in a low voice over the clacketing rails, in French, your mother tongue, the language of Piaf and Pétain, to one and all, long life. To all those smiling Cambodians to whom I spoke in Stilting Khmer in the refugee camps at Kaoidang and Nong Kai, and those in the transit camp at Panatnikom, the ones whose smile Paul Pot could not efface, behind whose teeth every tongue, every bitten tongue, held its tale of loss, buried in the graceful splay of the dancer's fingers, the artificial fingernails, curved backward, painted gold, the dances for birth, for rebirth, for harvest, tribute. To that one specific woman, her name long flown, who came to the makeshift delivery room, abdomen swollen, well beyond the nine-month gravid girth the obstetrics text told us to expect, and delivered without anesthesia, without a sound, a boy without a brain, and got up off the table and smiled at me, made the why of respect, eyes cast down, palms pressed above her bowed head, and, still saying nothing, returned to the straw pallet in the thatched roof tent where her husband and mother and child awaited her, where she'd slept each night the past two years. Tribute. It is true, the hacked and mutilated in Kigali, the ethnically cleansed in all the Srebrenica's, those who survived the Gulag and those who didn't, the desaparecidos of Santiago and Buenos Aires and the bloody broken wishbone of Central America, those who fell at wounded knee and those who yet stand, the children of the children of the children of the slaves who passed through Gore Island to become New World dust, the Armenians, Palestinians, Tibetans, Kashmiris, Kurds, all the tongues, all the words, poetry stops nothing. I don't know when you were born, Robert. You wrote the poem we heard today in 1928, the one where you call out at midnight, call all to you, those lost in the fields, old skeletons, young oaks cut down, scraps of cloth rotting on the ground, hangmen, pilots, bricklayers, architects, assassins, the one you love. Three times you call the one you love. I'd guess you were close to 30 when you wrote it, maybe 29, born in 1899, 100 years ago. If they found you in some cafe arguing about Wittgenstein or Nietzsche with your friends, if you didn't look like a Jew and none of your neighbors bore you a grudge or coveted your flat or your gooseneck lamp, maybe they didn't find you for a while until 1942 or 43. That would make you my age when you boarded the train. In the grainy, flickering, silent movie of your life, it would be winter, a gray day, 
raked by wind, your black fedora slung low over your brow. But it wasn't, I can see it, one of those perfect Parisian days, late spring, 11 a.m., the smell of brioche on the cobblestones, the sun bending to kiss the dry earth like a pilgrim first arrived at Mecca. Now we enter the next century, all the future names God alone knows, their names, the towns, the rivers which will run black, God and you, Robert, and the darkmost chamber of every human heart. But you knew all that, even as you went up that rough planking into the boxcar and stood with the others massed there, held on to the sideboards with one hand, the other you took from your lower back, where the blunt end of the Pulitzer's rifle had smashed into your kidney. Your urine will run red. All this you knew when you ran your finger along the wrinkled right palm of the woman with the gold tooth, looked deep into her deep brown eyes, and predicted long life, and to her twelve-year-old grandson clinging to her side, long life. The wheel is turning, Robert. The next century is upon us. The knives are glinting and sharp. The one you loved did not listen. The one you loved did not hear. The one you loved did not answer. I extend my hand to you. Thank you. We'll be right back after a break, and we'll talk a little bit about that poem. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is The Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Roy Jacobstein, and we're talking about his book, Ripe. Welcome back. This is WCBN. We are speaking with Roy Jacobstein on The Living Writers Show today. The poem you just read for us, um, Stolat, from your book, Ripe, you wrote that before September 11th, and you actually flew to Cambodia, September 11th, 2001, that would be, 9-11, and you flew to Cambodia right about then. Um, Is that, did I ever get the dates right? Yes. And you, you spoke about, um, or you mentioned the, the term poetry of witness. Um, I'm wondering sort of what the impulses are for you. If you had to kind of get to the core, um, your impulses in writing political poetry, is this a poetry of witness or is this a process of working through emotion or tapping into currents that are there um, about conflict, conflict in your own life? Where where do you locate the, the nucleus of your impulse to write poetry of, uh, that's political? Uh, I don't even know if we have to qualify it as political because I think there is a kind of... Uh, I read once somewhere that having a kind of low-grade but functional degree of melancholy is a good state for a poet. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember saying one of the good things about being a poet was that you got to wear black a lot. That was after a fiction writer said, boy, you poets sure have a dark view of the world. 
And I said, yeah, but we get to wear black a lot. And then I realized I was in New York where everybody wears black anyway, you know. Are they all poets or just all <laughs> melancholy? <Yeah. laughs> but um, I think, you know, this is obviously just for me because there are, there are poets that uh, spend uh, – Mary Oliver who writes about nature and – and, you know, the great poets of love. And, and I try those things. And sometimes something, what we call a keeper, comes along. But um, I guess, yeah, the, the kind of that sense of uh, what is the wrong with the world or the injustice of the world um, uh, is, is a core part of um, my psyche and my writing. In the book, there are lots of um, threads that that come from different um, places, I imagine, and and are um, point to a, a rich and varied life. Um, there's also this core of sort of coming from home. You grew up in Detroit, Detroit or outside Detroit? Mm-hmm. Am I? No, Detroit. Right, you grew up in Detroit. The famous Mumford High School. <laughs> oh, did you? <laughs> Wonderful. Which you all listeners may have, may have seen in Beverly Hills Cop because Eddie Murphy wears the sweatshirt from, from Mumford High. High. Yeah. What's the mu- mascot? The Mustangs. The Mumford High. In fact, I won't, uh, I won't force the readers to turn the radio off by singing the, the fight song, but I could. Well, maybe <laughs> we'll have you back for that. Um, but I'm wondering if you will tell us a little bit about um, where you come from originally and how that plays into your poems. And if you'll first read the poem Home Run and then sort of riff off that, I think that's okay. a good place for us to start. Great. I, I might say about this poem, um, one of the no-nos in writing, uh, contemporary writing probably always, has been the avoidance of sentimentality. On the other hand, I forget who said it, but it was very wise that if you're not, uh, if you're not skirting sentimentality all the time, you won't be writing very meaningful work. So I find myself asking myself which side of the road I'm on with this one, but nonetheless, uh, thank you for asking me to read it. <clears throat> Home Run. Somewhere still, it's salami day, so my father must be slicing and dicing with the precision of a Japanese chef, the chunks of purple meat flecked with fat piling higher and higher on the formica counter in the kitchen. If it's Tuesday, it'll be French fry day. My friends will be hooking their mitts to their jeans, hopping onto their bikes. 6 p.m., he's been sighted again, disgorged from the Dexter Davison bus. His briefcase moves in pace with his stride up the street toward our first floor flat. They can see the tie already loosened at his neck, the sleeves of his white-on-white shirt rolled back, bearing the lipomas that line the length of his dark forearms like eroded hills. They can already hear his chortle, can imagine the gurgle of hot oil surging through the mesh strainer. Already... They're burning the roofs of their mouths. They'll never learn. And the golden, hand-hewn fries, edges beveled like cut gems, always taste like luck. Sweat pearls on his scalp, a windshield's first drops of rain, wiped away, returning. It's the sweat of running the bases, the ball rolling between left and center, all the way to the fence. It's the good sweat of a good man, my father headed home. Thank you. 
So you grew up in Detroit, um, went to Mumford High School. Um, talk a little bit about, I mean, the, the poem tells us a little bit perhaps about the sort of atmosphere there, although I, I won't hazard to say this is autobiographical. <laughs> but, um, but, it, but what is uh, your experience like well, in retrospect now that you are sort of a citizen of the world? Well, another, well sometimes I am fond of uh, thinking of all the people who have come from Detroit uh, uh, you know, Madonna. <laughs> I could go on and on, but but it's funny because one of the the talks I'm giving here during the three days that I'm uh, visiting lecturer in the medical humanities is I'm talking about why it took me so long to come to writing, and one of them, I I, I one of the the etiological causes I uh, attribute to Vlad the Impaler, the original of whom was, of course, Dracula, but in my case, it was Vladimir Nabokov, and I thought that I had to write like him in three languages, um, never revising anything, as he claimed he never did, which I subsequently found was, of course, totally false. And then he had a magical, charmed uh, childhood uh, in the uh, midst of the Russian Revolution and on the French Riviera, and I I used to feel sorry for myself. I was growing up in Detroit. Well, you know, who who's going to be able to write about that? And yet, as I just found myself feeling as I was reading that poem, and for those of you who've read the wonderful Detroit novel Middlesex um, or the poetry of Philip Levine and, and many other writers and poets, um, Detroit, like any other place, uh, home is is a rich load um, to draw from, and and. Uh, and it doesn't have to be the Riviera f- to be a source for you. And you can make it your Riviera or your Russian Revolution or or whatever. And in thinking about sort of subject and drawing from places, um, how do you anchor yourself? I mean, you, you, you now live in Chapel Hill, work in New York and around the world. Um, you're on tours, as with this one. Uh, you're you're in the air a lot, and um, is Detroit an anchor? Is home is is a concept of home different from Detroit, and what would that be? Um, I think, in a way, um, much like novelists say that you know they they have to write their first coming of age novel or their first divorce novel. I can see now that uh, at least for me, my first book of poetry was a Detroit novel, a Detroit uh, book of poetry as well. Uh, uh, for anybody who reads it, I'll. Uh, I thought I had left internship and residency behind, although I often describe internship and residency to non-medical friends as the closest that a a kind of middle-class, well-fed American can come to being in the gulag. So I suppose it's not surprising that both of those were sources of my first book. Um, One would be able to tell I have two more books that I have been They've been finalists in book contests. They haven't yet been been accepted anywhere. But but they um, certainly you could tell it was the same writer and have a lot of the same themes. But but Detroit is much less prominent. Um, medicine is still there because uh, any specialized pursuit gives you a diction, a specialized diction that is very useful in poetry. The more things you can bring to poetry, uh, whether it's syntax, diction. Um, there's a whole host of tools you can bring to your poems, and, and certainly diction of a specialized sort is one. So let's talk about the new books. Um, you're going to be reading, well, th- this is a pre-recorded broadcast, but you will have read, by the time folks are listening to this, you will have read at Shaman Jam from your book Tourniquet, um, 
Am I right? Uh, well, I have a chapbook that's now out called Tourniquet. That title poem details in great and painful length my uh, mortifying performance on the game show Jeopardy. It manages to include love, death, and taxes in the same poem. It And Jeopardy. And Jeopardy. <laughs> um, and and um, it has poems that come from my second book called A Form of Optimism and my third book called If They Don't Have Ritalin in Heaven. If They Don't Have Ritalin in Heaven is a poem that will s- shortly be out in the Gettysburg Review. And A Form of Optimism takes its title from this uh, uh, saying, uh, you'll see it's continuing the interest in political poetry. It's taking its uh, title from a saying of Roberto Rossellini, in Cahiers du Cinema in 1954, he said, uh, I am not a pessimist. To look evil in the face is a form of optimism. So that book has more, like the poem that I mentioned that's on Poetry Daily yesterday, Monday, September 26th, is in that book, um, Tourniquet, the poem about uh, Jeopardy and uh, uh, more popular culture kinds of poems are in the third book. And I even have a fourth one that is not its not ready to, to be sent out, but it's called Fuchsia in Cambodia, and it's about adopting my little daughter. Uh, my wife and I uh, found ourselves in Cambodia on September 11th, 2001, which is 12 hours ahead of time, so it wasn't our September 11th yet. And I woke up the next morning to tell a friend of mine who was working there that we were going to get her. And he said, what do you think about everything? And I said, what? And he said, turn on the TV. And then in 50 channels and how many languages, countless languages, there were the towers falling.